You can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. We're going to begin at verse 27. When we last left Jesus, he was on the Temple Mount in an extended question and answer time with the religious leaders. They were trying to trap him. They're looking for an excuse to arrest him. And if Jesus said something outrageous enough or inflammatory enough or provoking a riot enough, they might actually come down and find a reason to arrest him. Well, we saw how Jesus answered the question so powerfully and so beautifully before um, where he talked especially about that whole situation when they brought him the coin and asked if they were obligated to pay uh, taxes or the coin unto Caesar. And Jesus answered there very brilliantly, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but render unto God what is his. Well, that sort of stopped right in the middle of this time of Jesus on the Temple Mount. I do want you to remember that in the context here, we are at just a few days before Jesus will die on the cross. So there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of pressure in this whole situation. Verse 27. Then some of the Sadducees who deny there is a resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us, That if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as a wife, and he died childless. And in like manner, the seven also. Then they left no children and, and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as a wife. I often recommend to you that as you read the Bible, you should allow it to be like a movie running in your head. And I want want you to let the movie run in your head. These religious leaders come to Jesus. They've got these smug, self-satisfied. They're dressed in very fine clothes because they are of the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the power party. They were the ones in the Jewish political arrangement that were most cooperative with Rome and received most of the favors and most of the money that Rome might channel through. the Roman. They, they were the, the, the politicians, but they were also ones who didn't really believe what the Bible said, especially when it came to supernatural things. I mean, Luke tells you this right here in verse 27. Did you see it there in verse 27? The Sadducees who deny there is a resurrection. Well, boom, Luke's just giving you the game right there. You see, the Sadducees were sort of the ancient version of the modern liberal theologian. They were anti-supernaturalistic, and they would only accept what the first five books of Moses said as being authoritative. They disregarded what was written in any of the other books of the Old Testament. They did not believe in the resurrection, in immortality, in spirits, or in angels. They just didn't believe in them. Now, I found out something very interesting this week in my studying that I never knew before. The name Sadducees seems to come from the ancient Old Testament name Zadok. Zadok was a priestly family, and many of the priests were of the family of Zadok. And Zadok kind of got morphed into Sadducees. It basically means the priestly party. Uh, Leon Morris says this. 
They were the conservative, aristocratic, high priestly party, worldly-minded and ready to cooperate with the Romans, which, of course, maintained them or enabled them to maintain their privileged position. So these wealthy, cultured, educated hotshots come to Jesus and they've got the question. Matter of fact, it's entirely likely that this was sort of a standard question that they used to demonstrate how ridiculous the idea of the resurrection was. And what was the question? Well, you notice it says there in verse 29, now there were seven brothers. They asked Jesus a hypothetical, and if I may say, a ridiculous question. If you've got a woman and she's married to seven brothers successfully and they all die, call homicide for an investigation, right? Isn't it pretty obvious? I mean, no woman is that bad of a cook. So it's a hypothetical and it's a ridiculous question to be sure, but actually it's based on something in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10. It said this, if a married man, okay, he's married, so he has a wife, if he dies childless, then it's the responsibility of one of his brothers. Now, if he has brothers, if he doesn't have brothers, then it's just a tragedy all around. But if he has brothers, it's the responsibility of one of his brothers to actually provide children to the wife And those children would actually be raised with the name and the inheritance of the brother who died. This is so the name and the inheritance of the brother who died would not disappear from Israel, but that it would be perpetuated. So this practice is known, it even has a fancy name, it's called levirate marriage. It comes from the Latin word levir, meaning brother-in-law. And again, it's found in Deuteronomy. So this was the specific idea in question. So what did they do? They imagined elaborate circumstances along the lines of a hypothetical practice of levirate marriage. And I read it, so you you got the idea. I mean, you read it yourself. And what does it come down to? Verse 33, therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? And I can just see it in my mind, can't you? Can't you see that smug, self-satisfied Sadducee who asked the question, well, Jesus, just try to answer this one. You know, this is the question we give to all the guys and nobody can answer it. You know, this is it. So let's see what Jesus' reply is going to be. Verse 34, and Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Jesus blew their mind with this answer. In verse 35, he says, neither do they marry nor are they given in marriage. You know what Jesus basically replied? He said, hello, Sadducees, Don't you realize that life in the age to come, life in heaven, is fundamentally different than life on earth? You're just imagining life on earth extended up into the clouds where people, you know, strum harps and there's, 
you know, angels flying around, and we just live for a long time. He goes, you guys don't get it at all. The life we live and the life to come is of a different order altogether. Here we marry and are given in marriage. Up there, we do not do it. You see, this life compared to the life to come, the life to come is of a completely different order. Now, this passage has made many people wonder if marriage relationships are going to exist in heaven or if those who are husband and wife on earth will have any special relationship in heaven. Now, we're not told enough about life in the world to come to be able to answer that in great detail, but we can give a couple of principles, okay? Here's the first principle. Number one, family relationships will still be known in the life to come. How do we know this? Well, Jesus gave a story about a rich man who died and went to Hades. And the rich man that Jesus described in the afterlife was still aware of his family relationships. He mentioned his brothers. So we will be aware of family relationships in the life to come. You're you're not going to see your wife or your husband and say, were you my wife on earth? I really don't know. You know, I I can't remember. It's not going to be like that. We're going to know each other. And, And you will know your family in heaven. But the second principle is this, that the glory of heaven will be a relationship and a connection with God that surpasses everything else, including present family relationships. The overwhelming reality of heaven is relationship with God. Relationship with God is so fundamental to understanding and experiencing heaven that the book of Revelation describes God's presence in heaven as being like the sun that shines down upon everything. I mean, it's just of a different order than this life uh, uh, completely. That will reorder every human relationship in light of the surpassing reality and glory of the relationship with God we have in the age to come. So I don't know if I can answer the question any more specifically than that, other than to say this, you will know your relatives. So, look, preach the gospel to them and get along with them the best you can. Some of them you're going to be spending eternity with you. You will know your relatives. You will know family relations. But secondly, things will be of a completely different order because of the surpassing reality and glory of the presence of God. It seems that life in the resurrection that Jesus spoke of does not include some of the pleasures of life that we know on earth. Now, if that's true, and look, I don't mean to sound forward or anything, but if it's true that in the age to come, we don't enjoy the pleasures of marital intimacy, if we don't enjoy those pleasures, it is only because There is a surpassing glory and a surpassing pleasure that we have in the presence and the experience of God, and if I may say, the complete fulfillment of who we are as human beings. Nobody's going to be the loser in heaven. 
Nobody's going to feel that anything is lacking or that something's missing at all. No one will be disappointed with the arrangements. Now, if I could say, the question is not merely the- uh, theoretical. There are going to be many people in heaven who have had more than one spouse for any number of reasons. How's God going to arrange that? What Jesus is basically saying is because he doesn't give a detailed answer other than just to say (coughs) that the way things are done in heaven is different from the way things are done in earth. Don't worry about it. That's basically what Jesus says. So it's not a theoretical here, but Jesus did tell us, or at least imply, that jealousy and exclusion will have no place in heaven at all. Now, one other thing I should point out. The biblical understanding of heaven is completely different than that of some other religions. And I'll just mention two that come to mind. Maybe there's more. But as much as I know, Islam and Mormonism. They have very, if I can just say, sensual um, images of heaven. That all the sensual things that a holy man denied himself on earth are flooded upon him in heaven. That's kind of the idea. That is not the Bible's idea of heaven at all, expressed by what Jesus said right here. But notice what he says here in verse 36. Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being the sons of the resurrection. Jesus reminded us of another very important point, that life in heaven is eternal. You don't die anymore. And therefore, it shares some characteristics of the life or the existence that the angelic beings now experience. Although... We will be even greater than the angelic beings, being called, as it says there in verse 36, sons of God and sons of the resurrection. Those two titles are not given to angels, at least not in the New Testament. To put it very basically, I could say this. If there is no death in the age to come, there's no reason for procreation in the age to come because nobody dies. I mean, here, if there were no procreation, the human race would be gone in one generation. But no, Jesus says, no, you don't die in heaven. And that's very significant. Now, not only did Jesus expose the foolishness of their question, but I want you to notice how he did it. What were some of the things that the Sadducees did not believe in? They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in immortality. They didn't believe in spirits. And they didn't believe in angels. In this one thing that Jesus replied, he contradicted all of them. Okay, Sadducees, wrong, 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 wrong. And he does it on a principle from Deuteronomy, which was one of the five books of the Bible that they did accept. So Jesus pretty much not only, you know, kicked them in the rear, he then just kind of, you know, I don't know, gave them noogies or something like that afterwards. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really conclusive what Jesus did to them there. But if you think, well, let's put it this way. Verse 37, now it's like he's got their head and he's going to start giving them noogies here in verse. I feel really bad if somebody from another country is watching this on live stream and they're, they're flipping through a lexicon trying to find noogies? What are, what are that? I don't know. Verse 37. We could bring somebody up on stage and demonstrate, but there's no reason for that. 
Verse 37. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. When he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. (laughs) Jesus said, listen, Mr. Sadducee, I'm just getting started with you. I already told you that angels really exist and that there is immortality and that there is a resurrection and all your ridiculous questions trying to prove otherwise are just silly. Get them out of my face. But let me tell you something else. You guys don't believe there's a resurrection? The first five books of the Bible prove there's a resurrection. And let me explain to you how, because it says there in verse 37 that God calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He demonstrated the truth of the resurrection using only the Torah, the five books of Moses, because those were the only books that the Sadducees would accept. Jesus said, okay, I'll prove it to you from there. And here's the simple point. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not live on in the resurrection, then God would not say he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob. I was the God of Isaac. See? But the fact that they live on proves that he is that God remaining so. And it's very um, emphatic in the... um, in what Jesus said to them and how he says they live on. Matter of fact, this tells us some very interesting things just about the life to come, just right here in this little snippet. First of all, it tells us that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they live on, correct? Isn't that what Jesus is all demonstrating there? Well, how do they live? Well, first of all, they live personally. They're individuals. They live personally. In other words, they are still individuals in the life to come. The Bible knows nothing of this sort of Eastern concept that eternity is like a drop of water slipping into the ocean and you're just absorbed into the great nothingness. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Abraham's still Abraham. Isaac is still Isaac. Jacob is still Jacob. Matter of fact, not only that, not only do they have personally, they're named Do you see that secondly? They have names. You know, it's not going to be the guy formerly known as Abraham. It's Abraham. That's him. He has a name and an identity that keeps. And by the way, you can demonstrate this from a few places in Scripture, but it is important to point out that we will be able to recognize one another in heaven. Spurgeon mentions it that somebody asked him, or maybe it was somebody else, maybe he was just telling his story, uh, are we going to know each other in heaven? And as I thought his answer was pretty good. He goes, well, I don't expect it to be more stupid in heaven than I am on earth. <laughs> well, of course we're going to know each other in heaven. Personally, we're going to have a name, but then secondly, they are free from all sorrow. They will never die again, but instead they live as sons of God. And in a beautiful way, we can say they are not lost. Amen. We know right where they are. It's not like they're on some distant corner of the universe. What great comfort this is for those who have lost a loved one. I think about it in recent weeks. There have been some precious people who have passed from this life to eternity. And we think about it and 
we feel it acutely because we may feel that they are lost to us. And in a sense they are, but they are not lost. They are found with God just as much as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those who die in the Lord, are also with him. Let me read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I think it was very beautiful. He said this. Children of God, excuse me. Children of God, it is in the highest degree proper that you should think of things as your father thinks of them. And he saith, all live unto God. Let us correct our phraseology by that of Scripture and speak of departed saints as inspiration speaks of them. In our family we shall number brothers and sisters and friends whose bodies lie in the churchyard and we shall speak of those who crossed the border and passed within the veil as still our own. You know, just recently I spoke with a woman and she told me about her four children. Excuse me, she said five children. I have five boys and uh, one of them's in heaven. And you know, look, we just understand that that they're still family. They're still connected. They're still of our own. But he says it so beautifully there in verse 38. Notice what Jesus said in verse 38. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Jesus is just demonstrating beyond any doubt that there is a resurrection. There is a life beyond, despite what the doubting Sadducees thought and what they taught. No, Jesus answered well, and everybody recognized it. Some of the scribes who were against the Sadducees said, way to go, way to go, Jesus, you did a good job. Now Jesus is going to warn the religious leaders. Look at this, starting at verse 41, we read. And he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. (coughs) Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Notice Jesus asks them a question now, which is really sort of beautiful. He's been enduring all these assaults that have been coming after him. Now he says, now let me tell you guys a thing or two. Answer this question for me. How can they say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? You see, when the scribes and the Pharisees or the Sadducees questioned Jesus, they tried to make him look bad. They tried to trap him. But Jesus didn't know, didn't do, I should say, the same thing to them. He's not trying to make them look foolish. In other words, I love this. Jesus' questions are focused on revealing himself. Let's talk about the Messiah because that's who you really need to know. So what does he ask? He asks this basic question. How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? There are some passages of scripture that describe the Messiah as the son of David. There are other passages of scripture where David calls the Messiah his Lord. Well, how can he be both the son of David, which would imply that David was greater, because in that culture especially, The ancestor was always greater than his progeny. How can he be the son of David, David being greater, if he's the Lord of David, the Messiah being greater? You guys got an answer for that? Verse 44. 
Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Jesus there was quoting Psalm 110, and he noted that King David called the Messiah Lord. This means that the Messiah is both. He is the son of David. How about this? He is the son of David, if you want to say, making reference to his humanity, but he is the Lord of David, making view of his deity. Hey, uh, Mr. Scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, have you ever thought about this? That the Messiah is both man and God. Consider that. Verse 45. Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Here Jesus, I think in something that must have just simply shocked the religious leaders. <coughs> Jesus is a little tired of this old back and forth between him and the religious leaders. So what does he do? He doesn't talk to the religious leaders. He speaks to the crowd. There must have been a big crowd all around. And what does he say? Hey, everybody, listen to me. You see those religious fat cats? You see them with all their style and all their, uh, you know, uh, accoutrements and with all their authority? Well, let me tell you something about them. Verse 46, beware of the scribes, that's 45, who desire to go around in long robes, love greeting in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, on and on. You see, the scribes were men of leisure who watched while others worked. They loved greetings. They demanded recognition and honor from other people, uh, admiring them for their supposed standing with God. They wanted the best seats in the synagogues. They demanded the special benefits of status and privilege. And then verse 47 says, they devoured widows' houses. They found ways to get things out of vulnerable people. I don't know how they devoured widows' houses. Who knows? Perhaps they pretended to help the widows, and instead they used their position of trust to take from them. Maybe they received gifts from well-meaning widows, and then they mismanaged them. I I don't know. Maybe they solicited gifts from the widows with false promises. I don't know. But what it amounted to from Jesus was that they stole from these widows. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you, when I just told you that, the image of a televangelist just came up into your mind? Well, you know, I I suppose that some of them are guilty of that. Preying upon people, manipulating them to give. Sometimes the most vulnerable and the weakest people among us. In that day, a Jewish teacher could not be paid for teaching. But he could receive a gift. And apparently, many scribes and uh, uh, teachers used flattery and manipulation to to get big gifts from those who could least afford to give those gifts. You see, many of the Jews of Jesus' day taught that teachers were to be respected almost the same as God. And they said that they deserved more honor and respect than any other people in life did. They taught that the greatest act that somebody could do of holiness 
was to give a gift to a teacher. Isn't that a swell thing for the teacher to be teaching? And of course, it was they themselves that taught all this out of demonstrably selfish motives. Verse 47 also says that for a pretense they make long prayers. They thought they were more spiritual because of their long prayers. Now look at what he says in verse 47. It's very heavy. They will receive the greater condemnation. Have you ever thought of that phrase? There is condemnation for everybody who dies apart from God. Some people will receive a greater condemnation. And people who rip off others in the name of the Lord, they qualify for greater condemnation. I don't begin to tell you all the gradations of condemnation, who gets the worst, I don't understand it, but this is enough to terrify any of us. There is a such thing as greater condemnation. And among those who will receive it are those who rip and steal people, steal from people in the name of the Lord. Now, chapter 21, let's just look at the first four verses. And he looked up and saw uh, the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Jesus was there at the temple teaching all these things and he looked up and what did he see? He saw a long line of people putting money into the treasury box. And some of them were no doubt doing it with a lot of ostentation. In another place in the Gospels, Jesus described those who give with trumpets blowing and with great attention to it. And no doubt there was some of that going on. By the way, this indicates that the gifts at the temple were being received at an offering box. Sometimes churches wonder if it's more spiritual to use an offering box or to pass, you know, a plate or bags for a collection. I'll tell you what I say to pastors when they ask me that. I say, do whichever is going to be least conspicuous. If there's a line at the offering box, with a congregation with any size, there could very easily be one, then, you know, it's probably just to pass the bags. Because then it's just least conspicuous. Just do whichever is least conspicuous. Well, this is what they were doing there. They were, they were at this great thing. They were offering this money. And uh, they, they were giving their amounts. And they were rich. And everybody could see. But then verse 2. He also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. And again, in the movie that runs in my head. Here's Jesus, and he's tired. He's tired because he's been on the Temple Mount. He's tired because he's a wanted man, and there's all that stress upon him. He's tired because in a few days, he knows that the cross awaits him. He's tired because he's had to deal with argumentative religious leaders all day, and nothing will tire you out like dealing with argumentative religious leaders. And so finally, what does he do? He lifts up his eyes. He sees a bunch of rich guys. And then what does he see? One poor widow come up and she puts in two mites. You can picture the widow, can't you? She's kind of bent over. She shuffles in her steps. She takes a little purse out and very carefully draws the two coins out. And, And with great earnestness, she puts them in the box. Probably the rich guys are almost laughing at her. Jesus looked at her and I think he smiled. 
I think he said, yeah, that's the one. That's the one right there. Now, he gave two mites. I don't know exactly how much a mite is, but I'll give you the calculation that Matthew Poole gave in his commentary. I think you'll find this very helpful. He says that um, a denarii is one day's wage, and it equals six mias. One mia equals two pondrons. One pondron equals two isserines. One isserine is eight mites. This is all very helpful, isn't it? I always find it funny when they give the value of one coin into a relation of a coin that you have no idea what that means either. But it could come down to this. Two mites, it could be said, equals 1% of a day's wage. Now, some of you are thinking, well, you know, look, I do pretty good. I, you know, on a good day, maybe you're in sales or something. Man, in a good day, I, I could make $1,000 a day. So that's, that's 1% of that. That's not nothing. What is that, 1% of 1,000? 10? Thank you, math people. You know, 10, that's something. Okay, but look, you've you got to remember something. In these early societies, it was much as in the developing world today. When you go to a place in the developing world today and find out how much people make a day, what is it usually? You know, $2, $3 a day. That would have been sort of the equivalent. So really, basically, what you're talking about is a few pennies. That's it, a few pennies. That's what she did. She dropped them in. Now, you know what I love about that? And this just, I just love this widow. She gave both of them. Who would have criticized her for keeping one? Okay, here you go. If anybody in this room gives half of your total net worth to the Lord, we'll think you're the most amazing person who ever lived. And those two coins were all her net worth. And she could have been a hero for giving one. But what did she do? I'll give them both. That just absolutely blows my mind. So she puts them in the box and brought some well-needed refreshment to Jesus, I believe. Now notice this, verse uh, 3. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Isn't that powerful? This poor widow put in more than they all. Now, I don't think he meant more than any one of them individually. I think he put in more than all of them collectively. You know, here's the, the guys walking up, you know, those poster board checks, you know, the really big ones. They're all walking up, you know, to the thing and smiling and getting their pictures taken and all that. Here she comes and drops in a couple of cents. And Jesus said, all of them. <coughs> she just gave more. Isn't this powerful showing us that God looks at the spirit of giving And it's the spirit of giving that determines the value of the gift more than the amount. God doesn't want grudgingly given money. He doesn't want guilt money. He doesn't want manipulation money. God wants the cheerful giver to give. Now the widow's gift and the comment that Jesus made on the gift also shows us that the value of the gift can also be determined 
by what it costs the giver. What did it cost her? Everything. That's why her gift was so impressive. Not because of the amount, but because of the cost of it. This is somewhat of the spirit shown by King David in 2 Samuel 24. Do you remember that story? When David was going to purchase the threshing floor of Aruna, wasn't it? To make that, the, David was going to buy the property where the temple would be built. He knew that he couldn't build it, but he wanted to set everything in order for it. So he was going to buy it. And the guy who owned the threshing floor of Aruna, I assume it was Aruna, says to David, hey, man, you're going to do this for the temple? Let me give it to you. I'm happy to give it to you. And David said, no, because I'm not going to give to the Lord that which cost me nothing. And that, that's a heavy principle, isn't it? David goes, Aruna, you're not going to get the pleasure of this gift to the Lord. I'm going to get it. So I'm going to pay you full price, baby. And then I'm going to give it to the Lord. I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. But there's another principle here in what Jesus said. It also shows us that God does not need our money. If God needed your money, then pretty much the amount you give is the most important thing, isn't it? I mean, look, dollars and cents. If God needed your money, the amount would be the most important thing. But no, because God doesn't need our money, but we need to give, it's the heart that's most important. And therefore, it is our privilege to give unto God. And we need to give because it's good for us to be givers. Not, not because it's good for God. So the woman gave it out of her poverty. Now, why was she poor? Well, she was poor because she was a widow. And in that society, if you were a widow, in particular, if you were a childless widow, you had no support. You had no children to support you. There was no safety net. There was no social security. There was nothing to help you. You had nothing. And basically, you had to live off the generosity of others. She had no husband and presumably no children. Listen, isn't it significant that just before this, Jesus criticized the scribes who devoured women's houses or widows' houses. Maybe this lone widow was just such a victim, but she still loved the Lord and she made a spectacular contribution unto God. One more thing. This widow really challenges the notion that many of us think, and look, I... I don't condemn you for thinking this. It's so common. Everybody's experienced it. But many of us think, I'll give. Oh, man, I have the heart of a giver. I really want to give. And I'll give when I have more. When I got more to give, man, you better believe I'm going to be a giver. Oh, yeah, man, that is like way up there on the list. And God, if you ever help me to win the lottery, man, I'm really going to remember that, Lord. You know, on and on. Listen, this widow, doesn't it very powerfully show us that we don't have to wait? That even when we give to God out of our need or out of our poverty, as the widow did, it's glorious unto the Lord. 
every one of us can know the joy of pleasing God with our gifts. If you are a person of humble circumstances at this point in your life, you can know the same joy that a very wealthy person has in giving unto the Lord. You can know that same joy and that same work of the Spirit in your life. Well, I think that this little interaction or observation, it probably is better said, of the widow, gave Jesus a very brief moment of satisfaction. He said, yes, Lord. There is someone with a true heart around here. And it's important that he needed that because as we go on, it's going to get more and more heavy. If you look for Luke chapter 21, as we take a look at it next week, Jesus is going to talk about what's going to happen at the end. And that'll be a fascinating study that we get in next time. So let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that my voice was uh, more or less able to hang through this study. But Lord, I, I just pray that you'd give me and anyone else here, Lord, who needs it, the real heart of a giver. Lord, help us um, not to give out of guilt or manipulation, um, but Lord, out of joy. And Lord, um, especially, prepare us for this life to come. We're so impressed by the reality of the life to come that, Lord, we want to be ready for it when it comes. So help us with it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.